Father, we do praise you today and do want to keep our focus and our perspective your, upon you and uh, your plan and what you are doing in the world. And even in the midst, midst of suffering and difficulty that has been expressed that some are going through, that you would continually draw them to yourself and draw us to yourself, that we would, in fact, reflect that glory in a lost world, in a dark world. We desire that uh, we be equipped and have better insight today as we look into your word and understand what you have for us this, at least this week and beyond. So we commit our time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Continue looking in the book of Romans. And I thought this would be a good time to kind of review a couple of things not so much in the book of Romans, but some big picture things in the midst of this warning to Gentiles that we'll look at, starting in verse 22. That's where we left off, going all the way to verse 24, right on the verge of this exciting thought. And it's almost like Paul is anticipating and cannot wait until he announces in the midst of Israel's failure, Israel's disbelief, Israel's lack of response to him, in the midst of all that, all of Israel will be saved. And that's a momentous period of time that is future from the time in which we are living in. So I wanted to kind of give a little perspective of what leads up to that, and uh, we'll do that at the very beginning. But I also wanted to start with what this whole thing is all about, what God is doing. Just kind of a, another reminder, we've talked about this a lot before, but Paul is leading not only to all Israel will be saved in the midst of Gentile apostasy, you might say, or Gentile unbelief. There's going to be a period of time where God will be glorified, and after he talks about Israel— and their future. Let's skip down to verse 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And what Paul is laying out here is that wise plan that sometimes we get lost in the day by day and clouded by things in our midst like elections and illness and those sort of things, and we lose our perspective. But if we keep looking at what God is doing and what he has in store, and in fact, he is sovereign over all things, we can praise him as Paul does in verse 33, O oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. In other words, he is incomprehensible, and we don't have all of the information. We don't have all of the data, but we've been given enough that we can praise him for not only his incomprehensibility, but his glory and the fact that he has this plan that is unfolding in uh, Romans 9 through 11. And if you want to read on, verse 34, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? In other words, no one gives him advice. No one counsels him. No one really even knows how to give him any, any more knowledge. He's 
omniscient, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again. There's no one, no power, nothing. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And I think that's part of what God is doing in the world is he's unfolding a plan that should cause us to bow down before him in worship. And we'll get to this passage and look at it in a little bit more detail, hopefully, eventually. But part of that plan is unveiled in the passage that we've been looking at and also that we will continue to look at as we move forward. So it's a plan that involves the believers at Rome that were both Jewish and Gentile. And in this portion, he's explaining the plan of God in relationship to Israel. And he's vindicating the righteousness of God with three parts, showing the sovereign plan of God in choosing Israel. And because he's sovereign, he can choose whomever he so desires. And in that plan, we find out that he also has chosen Gentiles. And because of Israel's unbelief, they are set aside for the moment, rejected under discipline, but not totally and not permanently. There will be a future restoration. That's chapter 11, the chapter that we're in. And we're right on the edge, and we may even sneak into verse 25 and 26, that is the clearest passage in probably all of the New Testament concerning Israel's future restoration. So that's kind of where we're at. We've been talking about a remnant, and uh, not all of the nation is rejected. There's always a remnant. There always has been, and there'll be a remnant in the future. Paul develops that in the first six verses. The rest of Israel is hardened, but not totally abandoned. That's 11, 7 through 10. And the answer to the question, God is not finished with Israel? Absolutely not. So there's still a plan. In fact, there is a glorious future for the nation of Israel. In outline form, we're looking at the future restoration of Israel. There's always a remnant. First 10 verses. We're in the portion that deals with the restoration of Israel in the future. We saw that even the failure of Israel, God is working purposes out as a result of that. And one of the focuses is it involves the Gentiles. And he gives a parable that tells us that those Gentiles are grafted in to that olive tree. And I see the olive tree as the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham himself, and you might even include the patriarchs who also received a regiving of that Abrahamic covenant. And part of what we've looked at already, 17 and 18, this, this little parable or illustration, maybe not technically a parable, is primarily a warning. And there's at least three warnings. We've looked at the first one. First one is against arrogance. Even though Gentiles are prominent in the church age, and God is using people from every nation, including the remnant of Israel, that there's no reason to be arrogant. Everything is not only by grace, but we only stand by faith. 
So let me give you kind of an overview of world history leading up to at least this Abrahamic covenant. Some of you are familiar with this because I've used this several times before. And this is a thumbnail sketch of my foundations course that I've taught. And some of you have taken it and are familiar. And if not, I've used this for other occasions as well. So this is kind of a biblical perspective, a biblical view of world history, which I make the case is real world history. And you can fit all of secular world history within this biblical framework. And not only does it fit very nicely, but it explains secular world history, whereas the secularist has no explanation even for his own reconstruction of world history. Everything begins with God as creator. In fact, the little yellow under the box there represents eternity. So God is outside of the creation. God is separate and distinct. And in the beginning, God created all things. So he is the author of all things, the originator of all things. And uh, as a result of that, he also is sovereign and in control of all things. So everything that we experience is as a result of what God created in that beginning a few thousand years ago. Now, I put this together, as you know, in the form of these like foundation stones. So everything rests on the creation that God has created. We're still living in that creation. And when God created it, it was very good. But if you look around and you see the world, even the natural realm, you find out something happened that we no longer live in a very good creation. And Genesis 3 records the fall of mankind. These are both historical events just as real as the founding of America or just as real as a Babylonian empire in history. Creation and fall are historical, real events. They're portrayed that way in the book of Genesis. And the fall of mankind affected everything spiritually. And that's the emphasis of the passage. And that's the emphasis that theologians attach to Genesis 3. But if you look at the details, you'll see that the entire creation was affected. And it's another foundation stone. Not only do we live in the creation that God created, but that creation has been distorted and is fallen and is affected by the evil of man. And we also live in a fallen world today. And we see all the effects of that. God judges sin. And not only did he judge in the garden, but he brought a flood after the degeneration of the first civilization. And mankind is accountable, and God will bring judgment. And he brought a judgment of a flood. And that flood is the example that Jesus uses of an ultimate and a final and a future judgment. But it's also another historical event. In fact, there's overwhelming evidence for a Genesis flood. And it tells us that God is not only creator, he's not only a God of grace, 
He's not only a God of salvation, but he's also a God of judgment, and all men are accountable to him. Now, we don't have a lot of detail, but between the flood and the next major event that's recorded in the Bible, we see a new beginning with Noah and the three sons, and then we have a a rapid degeneration again where God intervenes with another judgment. And we also, by the way, live in a post-flood world under the Noahic covenant. The stipulations of the Noahic covenant are upon us today and control science, you might even say, and the natural realm. But after the flood, there's a period of time where mankind is judged again, and we have the origin of the nations as a result of the scattering. And also, this is a foundation for nations today, and all of the nations that exist today find their origin at uh, the scattering as a result of man's rebellion against God at Babel. And then God has essentially rejected the world system and has called to himself one individual, and he's given that individual promises. So out of the nations, he calls one individual, and some of the promises is that God will create what we might describe as even a counterculture, his own nation that will counter all of the nations and their idolatry and sinfulness and rejection of the one true God. So the intent of Abraham is to represent God in a dark and lost world. So Abraham is a foundation stone as well. And the Abrahamic covenant, I've said several times, is the the basis for how God will deal with all of the nations from Abraham on, depending on how they respond to Abraham. If they bless Abraham, they will be blessed. If they curse Abraham, they will experience even a severer curse. So world history is regulated, and we're under this regulation of God as a result of the promises made to Abraham. And Abraham is very, very important, and I see him and the Abrahamic covenant as the not only the basis for Israel as the nation, but we've been using Paul's illustration of the olive tree. And the olive tree has roots. Those roots, I think, are personified in Abraham. I think that's the reference in, in the passage. And Abraham is set apart from the rest of the world by the Abrahamic covenant and uh, set apart using the language that Paul uses. If the root is holy, set apart, substitute the phrase set apart, if the root is holy, then the branches are also set apart. That's verse 16, 11, 16. And then he launches into the example or illustration of the uh, olive tree. And we've been putting the image of an olive tree from Gethsemane in our thinking and using it as the illustration that Paul uses in Romans chapter 11. 
And some of the things that we've noted in chapter 11, very quickly, it's an illustration like a parable. And one of the themes is this idea of contrary to normal practice, which will be emphasized in verse 24. We'll get to it. We see the imperatives of the main clauses. We've already seen uh, two imperatives. Actually, you could even include three, but two negative ones. And uh, those are the thrust and the main emphasis of the passage. And we saw the little word some distinguishing hardened Israel from the remnant. Some are broken off. And behind the breaking off, obviously, is God himself. And uh, he separates in verse 17, some referring to the hardening of Israel. I also mentioned the singular you, looking at Gentiles as one, or I don't want to say corporately because there's no corporate entity. There's distinct nations, but uh, Paul, using the singular, is looking at them more generically, you might say, or as one, and that runs throughout the passage here. We saw the idea of the Gentiles being spiritual sharers, the word that Paul uses, partakers, translating a Greek word. And throughout, we've been stressing there's no replacement theology here. In other words, the church shares in uh, the root, the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant but do not replace Israel. There will always be a remnant. There will always be the covenant, and God will not break that covenant. If the church replaced Israel, then God is going back on that covenant. And later on in chapter 11, he's going to make clear that the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So no replacement theology. And the issue throughout is the issue of faith or lack of faith. So we also saw verse 20 last time. Paul agrees with verse 19, the argument that uh, the Jews are broken off so that room can be made for the Gentiles, but they're broken off because of their unbelief, not because of anything special in Gentiles. In fact, There's a very negative picture throughout Scripture of Gentiles, and certainly the Jews epitomized that negative viewpoint and uh, led to pride on their part and ultimately unbelief, but they were broken off for their unbelief. So there's the emphasis on faith, and the Gentiles stand only by faith. Therefore, we have that second exhortation, do not be conceited, but fear. And I uh, interpreted the word fear there in not only the sense of reverence, where that same word, phobos, but I uh, understand that to also include the idea of there's a coming danger that we need to be aware of. And that warning First one was warning against arrogance, having the idea of triumphing over, as if the Gentiles have triumphed over Israel and now are prominent. No, the idea is there's grace and God is disciplining. So there's no reason to to have 
a boastful attitude or an arrogant attitude. Then he uses a second word of conceit. And we looked at the uh, details of that is to think highly of self. No reason to elevate self looking down upon the Jew, but rather we are to fear. And that fear includes a fear of removal from the root removal as an entity or as a as a unit or as a group and we'll develop that further in the third warning so there's a second warning against conceit 19 through 21 and that picks up where we're at today verse 22 warning for the gentiles and there's two parts to it verse 22 is the warning part and then uh, 23 and 24 is the potential of what god can do And then if you want to jump ahead to verse 25, what God will do. So behold, then the kindness, we saw this last time, this is still reviewing, behold, then the kindness and severity of God, and to those who fell, referring to Israel, hardened Israel, severity, but to you, singular again, you as a unit, you Gentiles, God's kindness But there's a condition here. You stand by faith and faith alone. The condition, if you continue in his kindness, in other words, continue trusting, continue in faith, continue walking, continue in the provisions that God has made, provisions of uh, the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, you again, as a unit or generically singular, you also will be cut off. So if God has cut off the nation of Israel, Gentiles, as the focus of God's working in the world, they can also be cut off. Now, I've been stressing throughout, he's looking generically, broadly, in terms of Israel, corporately and nationally in terms of Israel, not individually, Now, obviously, there are individual issues that come into play, but broadly, he's talking as a unit here. So he's talking about the broad overall church, I believe, or Gentiles, or the combination of Jew and Gentile that have the potential of apostasizing. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And we'll get into this a little bit more. So we looked at the words kindness, used three times in the verse. Unmerited goodness of God. So it's grace. In fact, the word is related to grace. If you look at the Greek word there, Christotes. And severity, apotomia, uh, has the idea behind it of to cut off. And some of you brought out some of the other related words. I think Jeff did last time. Has the idea to sharply cut off. So Gentiles will be cut off as well. Although the word there at the end of the verse is a different Greek word. So he uses two different words to convey the idea of cutting off. Severity here is sharply cut off. And then the second one in verse 22 or the last phrase there in verse 22 is actually a different word. And let's spend the rest of the time with the positive, with the potential for Jews, 23 and 24. And let's continue on our overview of world history. 
We have, obviously, Abraham is the foundation for how God is going to deal with the world for the rest of world history. So the nation of Israel that stems from Abraham will be the focus of God's work. And I've said many times, world history is Jewish. So really, creation, fall, flood, scattering are just foundational and are introductory to Abraham, who is the father of the nation of Israel. Israel found its prominence in the kingdom, and we see that all from the very beginning. Genesis 1.28, man is to rule the world. That was God's mandate to Adam and Eve, and because of their failure, that has been hindered throughout history. But ultimately, God intended that the world be ruled by men, by mankind. And Israel, as the, as the nation that God is going to use, his instrument became the prominent nation amongst all nations under David and Solomon. And that's the high point. God intended to rule the world through Israel. Now, Israel failed to fulfill the intention of God of being that light and in fact, being the ones that bring the nations into a relationship with God, they uh, in fact became idolatrous. And the latter part of the kingdom age essentially degenerated. So we have the influences of the fall continuing throughout world history. And also the idea of God judging because the nation of Israel will be judged as well and go into exile and those later prophets speak of the judgment of Israel and eventually Judah and Israel as the nation is divided. And in those prophets, they also look forward to the coming of a salvation under the Messiah. And uh, we would expect and would hope that Israel would accept her Messiah and as Messiah, he would come as ruler, as king, and introduce a kingdom. And he offered that kingdom. But what happened to the kingdom? Well, first the Messiah was rejected by the nation. And as a result, the kingdom is delayed. And after Jesus was uh, rejected, he promised that he would establish a new entity that we know of as the church. And we are living in that period of time called the church where God, using the olive tree image, God has grafted in Gentiles into the root of Abraham to be the primary instrument that he will use in a particular time frame. But Paul tells us, that if the church abandons God as a unit or as an entity, then uh, they will be cut off as well. And in verse 23, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, the they there is Israel. If the Gentiles are cut off, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, remember the issue is faith, if Israel turns, and in fact, when they call upon the name of the Lord, God is going to reestablish them. And in fact, what Paul says will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in 
again. So we have the potential and we even have more than the potential. We have the great possibility that God is able to graft them in. Now, I started off with the theme of God glorifying himself, and God has been glorified throughout world history. And if you look at world history from a biblical perspective, you see that God continually unfolds not only this glorious plan, but also unfolds aspects of who he is. He's creator, he's judge, he's patient, or long-suffering is one of the words that is translated, or the word is sometimes translated. He is uh, loving all of the aspects of who God is. And we've even seen in this passage, he's a faithful God. Yep. Uh, Just a question on that verse. Do you know what kind of condition that was? I didn't look. Let's see if they do not continue in their unbelief. I don't have my Greek text here. Okay, I'll look later. Yeah, we'll have to look later. I don't know if uh, Nate can look it up while he while we're looking here. What condition? That's a good question, though. It's a uh, third, third class. There's your answer. Thank you. So there's some. Explain the third class condition. It's not. It, it's uh. There's some content. Uh, Contingency in there. Can't remember the exact phrasing describing the third class condition. It's not first class for sure. So it, for the third class, it doesn't. For the first class, it presupposes the, or it supposes the Prem- truthfulness of the the premise of the pro- protesis. Um, and for the third class, it, it may or may not there's nothing nothing is presumed about if it's true or not about if the fulfillment of the condition is true or not yeah so it's, it's just simply unstated, unspecified simply stated as a potential not going either way okay thanks Nate but because god is involved god is able to graft them in because God can do all things and because God is sovereign and also because God is faithful to his promises. We're getting the assurance. In fact, I think Paul is kind of building up to a climax. We have the potential in this verse and we have the possibility because God is able and we're going to see in verse 25 that God even has prophesied that it'll happen, so it is. It, it will be a certainty. We also have seen the grace of God and the grace as it's extended to the Gentiles, to the believing Gentiles, the kindness of God as well to believing Gentiles. We've seen that God is severe. He's judgmental. He is a judge to hardened Jews, and they are removed. They are uh, broken off, is the imagery from the, the tree. And now we have the omnipotence of God. God is able, and because God is able, he can restore the Jews. So uh, when you speak of the glory of God, I think the glory kind of looks at God in all of his multifaceted perfections, and we have some of them illustrated in the passage, and others we can uh, gather from 
elsewhere in Scripture. And that brings us to verse 24. For if you're cut off, that one almost looks like a first-class condition, and you were, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree. Now, the you here, I should have included the singular there, but he's still referring to Gentiles as a whole, or Gentiles generically, or Gentiles as one, without thinking in terms of those that believe, kind of generically, broadly, you might say. And last time I kind of gave you a timeline of how God's going to work, and we'll talk some more about this timeline. National Israel was cut off 70 AD. In fact, even before that, but uh, the nation was destroyed in 70 AD and scattered and hardened, you might say. In fact, they were hardened even before, and that's the reason that they were cut off. But there's always been a remnant of Israel. That's what we've seen in the first 10 verses of chapter 11. And that remnant will continue. And keep in mind that Romans, I've said, is written probably the best date. Scholars vary by one or two years there. 56, 57, winter of 56, 57. So Paul is writing before 70 AD, but anticipates the uh, the coming destruction of the nation and looks even beyond that. In fact, we've seen allusions to that in other passages as well. So there's a beginning of this new era, beginning with Pentecost, and we might describe that as the church age that includes Gentiles on an equal basis with Jews. In other words, access is by faith in the Messiah in the Lord Jesus Christ, and access is on the same basis. The dividing wall, you don't have to become a Jew anymore. That was settled in the Jerusalem Council. You don't have to uh, be, you're not under the law anymore. The New Testament makes clear. So there's a new era that begins with Pentecost. We have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit with both Jew and Gentile and Samaritan, you might say. We get even describe this as an inter-advent age between the coming of Messiah and the death of Messiah and the return of Messiah that the New Testament anticipates. And then the little phrase here, after, if you were cut off from what is by nature, notice that little phrase there, by nature, a wild olive tree, He's going to use that word nature three times in that in this passage, and he's going to use a same phrase two times, and I'll give it to you on the next screen, but from the English, first of all, notice by nature, and then notice the phrase contrary to nature, which is slightly different, although it has one of the words is the same. And then at the bottom there, who are the natural branches? So that idea of nature occurs three times and the same phrase two times and then a slight variation from that phrase. And I'll show it on this slide here with the background of the natural tree with the 
with the natural branches broken off and then the wild branches grafted in. The little phrase, according to nature, is katafusin, katafusin, two times, the first one and the third one. And then the middle one, contrary to nature, para fusin. So the idea of contrary is the preposition para. And the idea of according to is the preposition kata. So that phrase is used two plus the variation there a third time. But Ray, you, you have contrary to nature on this as you also wrote it as kata. Should that be para? Oh, that's para. Yep, another mistake. Sorry about that. I do a lot of copy pasting, as you can tell. Amen. <laughs> it's good to know that we're the dry run. Yep, you are. For if you were cut off from what is by nature, kata, by nature, according to nature, a wild olive. In other words, naturally you are wild, a wild olive tree, and were grafted contrary, para, contrary to the nature into a cultivated olive tree, which would be the natural or the uh, not the wild tree. And by the way, this is where we get this idea that even the parable itself is going contrary to nature. Uh, it's reinforced by this uh, 24th verse here where he uses this idea of contrary to nature and according to nature two times. Remember when we introduced the passage, we said that what Paul is presenting by way of illustration actually goes against what was commonly the practice of agriculture, not unknown and not unpracticed, but contrary. So we have contrary to nature grafted into a cultivated olive tree. So if you are cut off, how much more? So the argument from the lesser to the greater, if God can do these strange things or unusual things, contrary to nature things, how much more will these, who are the these? The these in, include Israel. Israel. How much more will Israel, these, who are the natural branches, in other words, the ones that belong to the root and by nature stem from the root, how much more will the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? So not only is there a potential here, but Paul is leading up to his next passage and giving us not only the potential or not only the, yeah, not only the potential and now the possibility, which is a little bit stronger, but even the promise. And this is not on your outline, but we can move forward to verse 25, and I'll introduce it, and we'll go into more detail next time on uh, verse 25 and 26. So 25 and 26, first of all, we have a, a new portion here, 25 through 32. Now we have the promise of Israel's rest restoration, which tells us that this is a certainty. In other words, God will, in fact, fulfill what he has promised. And you might even say, not only promised, but even entered into covenant 
with Israel to fulfill what he has explained in other parts of Scripture. So the hardness and deliverance, he's going to talk about hardness, a temporary hardness, and then a deliverance from that hardness, 25 and 26. And he's going to start off with this mystery of hardness in verse 25. And we have to include verse 26 because it's one long sentence. And like we usually do, I like to put the entire sentence on a slide so you can kind of see all of the parts there. And let me read it through, and then we can break it down. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. And then he has a little parenthetical portion in there. So that you will not be wise in your own understanding. So you could actually read it. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. Now he's going to tell us what that mystery is that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Remember, we talked about that. It's only partial in that there are some, we saw that in uh, verses 1 through 11 of the same chapter, there were some, there's always a remnant, so there were, there's a partial hardening in terms of the totality of Israel, But this also is going to tell us that there's a partial hardening temporally as well. A partial hardening happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Very interesting phrase here. I think that's the mystery, but the sentence doesn't end there. We have a semicolon, and part of what Paul is getting at, and the emphasis of the whole chapter, this is kind of... I guess you might say a secondary climax of the the chapter. I would say the primary climax with the verses that I started off with, the the worship part. But this is what he's been getting at in chapters 9 through 11 through verse 25 even. Uh, Verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved. And it's a certainty because... This is biblical, this is prophesied, this is promised. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And then he even expands upon it in verse 27. But that's the whole sentence. So there's a lot in that sentence and we'll spend more time next week taking a look at that. But let me just conclude today by looking at a couple of highlights here. This mystery in verse 26 includes these two aspects, this partial hardening until a very, I think, specific point in time until the fullness, hardening and fullness of the Gentiles has come in. We saw the concept of fullness in relationship to Israel in the future, but there's also this aspect of the fullness of the Gentiles, and we'll talk about what that means in more detail next time. But back to our little chart here, what he's leading up to, and here's the complete world history, all of world history is ultimately leading up to man ruling the world, 
And I think it ultimately looks at a period of time. The book of Revelation describes it as a thousand years where the second Adam will be the king of kings and lord of lords ruling the entire world. The nation of Israel will be prominent in the millennium. And what he's talking about in verses 25 and 26 is that day when the deliverer returns and removes ungodliness from Jacob, forgiveness of sin, removal of unbelief, removal of even sin itself, forgiveness of sin, and will in fact, as he said, all Israel will be saved. And again, this is corporate Israel. There's going to be a national turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, to their Messiah, and that'll happen preceding the millennium. And when they call upon the name of the Lord, Messiah will return and establish his kingdom. Now, he will destroy the existing world system. In fact, the seven-year period is a period of judgment upon the earth and upon unbelievers in that time frame. This is after the church. I don't show it on this chart, but it's after the church age between the church age and the millennial kingdom. It's a seven-year period. We can plot it on a timeline, and after the church is taken out at the rapture, so the church age has a finite time frame, that rapture, when the last believer of the church age believes in the in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's when the fullness of Gentiles comes in. And I see the fullness of the Gentiles as being the full quantity. So I think it's quantitative, at least, may be, may be qualitative, but in this context, I think it's the emphasis is quantitative. When the last chosen, you might even say, Gentile is brought into the church and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. Shortly after that, the church will be removed and God will now begin to work with the nation of Israel directly. They will be grafted back in. Now, the book of Revelation explains that God will raise up two prophets. This is Revelation chapter 11. They will be Moses and Elijah, I believe. They will prophesy, and Elijah, like a forerunner, in fact, he will be the ultimate forerunner, forerunner of the coming of Messiah. John the Baptist served as a picture of, and he came in the spirit of Elijah to introduce the Messiah in the first century. There'll be Elijah introducing Messiah at the end of the age. They will prophesy. Moses will, he's also a prophet, will prophesy. And there'll be an immediate response of 144,000 from the 12 tribes, 12,000 from each tribe. This is Israel, Israelite converts. They will present the gospel to the world. The greatest revival that the world has ever seen will take place during that seven-year period. The church will have been cut off. The apostate church will be judged during the seven-year period. 
That is pictured in Revelation chapter 17, the harlot. That is the apostate church. That is the cutting off of the Gentile instrument that God used during the church age. They will be cut off because they are apostate, just as the parable or the illustration of the olive tree indicates. That 144,000 will have a response of an innumerable, this is Revelation 7 still, from every tribe, from every nation, the greatest revival the world has ever seen. Now most of them will be martyred and die in the tribulation period, seven years, and Israel will be converted as a nation and they will call upon the name of the Lord. So there'll be the salvation of the nation. That's what Paul is talking about in Romans 11, uh, 26, when he says, all Israel will be saved. And then he backs it up with an Old Testament promise. And then Messiah will return. And when Messiah returns, he will establish a thousand-year kingdom. I should have mentioned that the true believing church that is raptured will return with Christ. And we will reign in the thousand years in resurrected bodies. So I gave you all of world history today. And we can conclude our ministry in the church age. And as it gets closer and closer to judgment, essentially, and purging of the seven-year tribulation as the world does, we are to rescue the unbelievers and especially those amongst the apostate church. The church is pretty apostate already, has departed from not only the Lord, but what he reveals in his word. Any comments before we close in prayer? Anyone want to close for us? Our Father and our God, we, uh, we pray that as we uh, reflect on uh, world history, as we're learning about it, now that uh, uh, that it will, first of all, be a source of hope and encouragement uh, for us, and that we will be vessels of that hope and encouragement. Uh, prepare us, Father, to be able to communicate it in a way that brings that about. So uh, we thank you for this, uh, this study and, uh, and your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well. I asked Jeff and Denise if they would mind uh, introducing themselves in the little time that we have left here, about 10 minutes or so. You can turn on your camera if you so please, if you want to, and both want to, or either one of you share. Well, I also took us off a permanent mute, so Denise is going to go ahead and start. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm, I'm Denise Childs. This is my husband, Jeff. And um, <laughs> um, we, well, for my own story, I've been a Christian for approximately 42 years. I just celebrated my spiritual birthday, November 10th. But the Lord brought us together when Jeff was in uh, Bible college in Birmingham. We've been married 25 years this last May. Thank you, Jesus. And primarily... Um, my place is to be a helpmate to my husband and to pray for the church and especially uh, for those who have yet to come to the Lord. 
So I feel like um, because of who I am and what the Lord has gifted me to do is to study his word for understanding but recognize it's the Holy Spirit that draws people to himself. And so I pray that he will touch the hearts of those who are still darkened. And that's me in a nutshell. When did you become a believer? 42 years ago. <laughs> well, I didn't ask for a date. I asked more for how did it happen? Oh, okay. Um, I, I was ministered to by a lovely man in Birmingham over the telephone uh, after asking a friend of mine from work um, if she could explain you know, I, I had been in um, a class years ago when I was in high school just to be able to uh, understand. I was in uh, a, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not very articulate. I was in a group Christian schooled um, ministry, but I didn't really understand when they were talking about the four laws. And I didn't understand Jesus sitting on the throne of my life at that time. So when someone tried to explain the four laws to me again, the four spiritual laws, I said, please don't do that. But I'm hungry to understand what the Bible really means. So she said, well, we'll I'll uh, introduce you to a gentleman who uh, has a ministry to the singles and young marrieds in Birmingham. Uh, they have what they call a Bible study. I said, well, that's unique, study the Bible and the Bible study. So I, I never heard that term because I was raised Catholic. So um, this gentleman spoke to me from the scriptures. Uh, I had been given a gift Bible uh, in a recent uh, revival. I had gone to a, a Baptist church for a revival, and they literally had four, four nights of explaining the passion of Jesus. Well, I was a basket case because I'm, I'm very sensitive, heart, heart sensitive, so tenderhearted. So when they gave me a gift Bible because they said anybody who is responding to this, meant to this uh, message, come forward. And so they asked me a question. They said, well, are you saved? I said, I don't know. And they said, well, are you born again? I said, I don't know. Well, we'll pray for you. So they prayed. And then they said, now you're born again. And they gave me a gift Bible. Well, I didn't understand any of it. So that's why I was asking about what does the Bible mean? So um, when I was talking to this gentleman, he was kind enough to tell me where he was reading the Roman law, the Roman road of salvation in the scriptures. He told me where that was. I could read it along with him. For two and a half hours on a Friday night, he explained salvation to me. But then he made a comment. He said, Denise, I'm going to pray a prayer. And if you want to ask Jesus into your heart as your personal Savior, I'll let that decision be between you and God. And so he did, and he was faithful to that, and it was 1130, and he said, well, amen, good night. Well, I had 100,000 questions at that point, but I couldn't call him back. So I laid there in my bed, reviewing my life in light of what the power of the scriptures were hitting me. And I asked the Lord to take away anything that didn't belong, that he didn't want, and to use me in any way he wanted to. And I accepted Jesus as my Savior that night. So I called him 
the next day, I called him back and I said, well, guess who asked Jesus into their heart as their personal savior? And he said, who? And I said, well, I did. He said, that's great. Where are you going to fellowship? I said, where am I going to do what? So I learned a little bit of Christianese at the time. I was schooled in a Bible for several years and through that process and from that point the lord brought me to my husband and that's who i am for now and today and forever great <laughs> sorry <laughs> and you did say you wanted both of us so, right right so here i, I started talking jeff way to go denise good job thank um, you <laughs> i was raised in an unbelieving family uh, and to this day, I'm the only believer <clears throat> that we keep praying. Um, uh, met a young man my freshman year of high school, first day, second period, named Jim. And we were unbelieving friends for about five years. And he went to New Mexico State University, uh, got his degree in electrical engineering. And uh, his roommate was a Christian, and my friend got saved. Well, in spring break of 1981, uh, he witnessed to me and I got saved. Uh, so it was spring break of 1981 that I formally got saved. Uh, then after that, 11 years Navy, four years Bible college, get married, and here I am. So uh, that's my that's my long story. <laughs> and what do you, know? you do, what do you do what are you doing now? Oh uh, well, right for, for for a living and ministry. <laughs> Tell us more about your ministry. Well, ministry, huh? Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, I did spend three years from 2003 to 2006 as a Bible teacher at a Christian school. Uh, but since 2007, I, uh, I've been working as a security guard. Uh, now there was, there was uh, from 1998 to 2009, I was in the Creation Science Fellowship uh, where um, I was able to present, uh, I think, a total of three uh, two or three separate presentations on mm, biblical chronology stuff, and they were nice enough to let me do that. But uh, for formal ministry, I really don't have anything formal that I'm doing. I, um, I'm kind of a researcher, and I did spend, um, starting in 2013, I started a long-term project uh, to study the tribulation as it's presented throughout the scriptures. Um, and I think I have burdened Nate with one of the earlier versions of that. Um, but, um, there really isn't anything else. I spend my time researching and studying scripture and, and going to work and that's it. Great. And do we, do we need to pray for your work situation? Oh, Connie, you just had to. All <laughs> <laughs> ah, right. Since Connie, I wasn't going to say anything, but, um, I've been working as a security guard, uh, access control at a medical call center for seven years uh and thanks to covid that's ending uh december 4th um now i work for a security guard company who's made it clear that they're going to find another place for me to work but uh well we're not gonna we're not gonna throw any shade on that promise right no, now no uh suffice to say that i've been a good employee now for uh, <laughs> Well, I, I worked for them for almost a year uh, before I went there. So I've been a pretty good employee for over seven and a half years. Uh, but they've promised me and the other three guards that are at that location that they're going to find places for us. Uh, but there's going to be a big change for me. My 
my official last shift uh, is December 3rd. So we'll be unemployed by Christmas. Uh, Yahoo. Uh, (laughs) In the middle of our two-week new lockdown. Yahoo. Um, So anyway, uh, that's it really. I'm just a security guard with lots and lots of time on my hand to sit and study the scriptures uh, when when the mind can focus. But the Lord is our provider, so we're waiting on him. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Any other questions there uh, for me? I think Uh, that's it. Right. That's it. Anyone else? Anyone else? Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Ain't nothing nothing earth shattering or wonderful or sky splitting or nothing like that going on here. Sounds wonderful. Thanks for sharing. Sounds wonderful (laughs) to me. Just sort of sounds like, sounds sort of to me like just being faithful in the middle of life. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, not not everybody gets to be a John MacArthur, so there you go. <laughs> uh, well, you can be thankful for that, too. There's there's a lot of responsibility, so. Yeah. There you go. Well, you know, it's, it's, um, um, thanks God, for that. For it is God who is in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And I think you can throw that in with uh, Ephesians 2 where he has prepared works for us. And then there is always the warning of James 3.1, let not many of us become teachers, for we shall have a harsher judgment. And you can go back to, I think it's number 16, and Korah's rebellion, to make sure that we are where God wants us to be, instead of trying to take something on that's not for us. Mm -hmm. So there you go. Amen. (laughs) Hey, Connie. Bye, guys. Can we pray for Jeff's family? Yeah, we can do that. You want to do it? Sure. Go, Nate. Father God, we thank you for the amazing things that you've done in Jeff and Denise's life. Lord, we thank you for bringing them to faith in you, for using different people who are bold enough to share the good news with them and that you open their, their eyes so that they might believe. And God, we thank you for just opportunities that they have um, with other people to share and that they're willing to be used by you, that their lives are living sacrifices for you, that they're dedicated to studying your word. And we pray for Jeff's family. Lord, we pray that you would soften their hearts. No doubt Jeff has shared with them many, many times. And we pray that, that you would use that and that you would bring other people into their lives because sometimes a prophet's not welcome in his own home and that other people would also share the good news of salvation through Jesus and that they would believe God. Please be merciful to his family members and just continue to use Jeff and Denise, provide for employment for them in the place where you want them to be in the time that you want them to be there and just um, continue to use them for your glory in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Nate. Amen. Thank you all. All righty. Have a good week, all.